This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Souls of Black Folk by W. E. B. Du Bois. Music and Text Recorded by Toria's Uncle. Chapter 7 Of the Black Belt. I am black but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. Look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. The Song of Solomon Out of the north the train thundered, and we woke to see the crimson soil of Georgia stretching away bare and monotonous right and left. Here and there lay straggling, unlovely villages, and lean men loafed leisurely at the depots. Then again came the stretch of pines and clay. Yet we did not nod, nor weary of the scene, for this is historic ground. Right across our track three hundred and sixty years ago wandered the cavalcade of Hernando de Soto looking for gold and the great sea, and he and his foot-sore captives disappeared yonder in the grim forest to the west. Here sits Atlanta, the city of a hundred hills, with something western, something southern, and something quite its own, in its busy life. Just this side Atlanta is the land of the Cherokees, and to the southwest, not far from where Sam Hose was crucified, you may stand on a spot which is today the center of the Negro problem, the center of those nine million men who are America's dark heritage from slavery and the slave trade. Not only is Georgia thus the geographical focus of our Negro population, but in many other respects, both now and yesterday, the Negro problems have seemed to be centered in this state. No other state in the Union can count a million Negroes among its citizens, a population as large as the slave population of the whole Union in 1800. No other state fought so long and strenuously to gather this host of Africans. Oglethorpe fought slavery against law and gospel, but the circumstances which gave Georgia its first inhabitants were not calculated to furnish citizens overnight in their ideas about rum and slaves. Despite the prohibitions of the trustees, these Georgians, like some of their descendants, proceeded to take the law into their own hands, and so pliant were the judges and so flagrant the smuggling, and so earnest were the prayers of Whitefield, that by the middle of the eighteenth century all restrictions were swept away, and the slave trade went merrily on for fifty years and more. Down in Darien, where the Delegal riots took place some summers ago, there used to come a strong protest against slavery from the Scotch Highlanders, and the Moravians of Ebenezer did not like the system. But not till the Haitian terror of Toussaint was the trade in men even checked, while the National Statute of 1808 did not suffice to stop it. How the Africans poured in! Fifty thousand between 1790 and 1810. 
and then from Virginia and from smugglers, two thousand a year for many years more. So the thirty thousand Negroes of Georgia in 1790, doubled in a decade, were over a hundred thousand in 1810, had reached two hundred thousand in 1820, and half a million at the time of the war. Thus, like a snake, the black population writhed upward. But we must hasten on our journey. This that we pass as we near Atlanta is the ancient land of the Cherokees, that brave Indian nation which strove so long for its fatherland, until fate and the United States government drove them beyond the Mississippi. If you wish to ride with me, you must come into the Jim Crow car. There will be no objection. Already four other white men and a little white girl with her nurse are in there. Usually the races are mixed in there, but the white coach is all white. Of course, this car is not so good as the other, but it is fairly clean and comfortable. The discomfort lies chiefly in the hearts of those four black men yonder, and in mine. We rumble south in quite a businesslike way. The bare red clay and pines of northern Georgia begin to disappear, and in their place appears a rich, rolling land luxuriant, and here and there well tilled. This is the land of the Creek Indians, and a hard time the Georgians had to seize it. The towns grow more frequent and more interesting, and brand new cotton mills rise on every side. Below Macon the world grows darker, for now we approach the Black Belt, that strange land of shadows at which even slaves paled in the past and whence come now only faint and half-intelligible murmurs to the world beyond. The Jim Crow car grows larger and a shade better. Three rough field hands and two or three white loafers accompany us, and the newsboy still spreads his wares at one end. The sun is setting, but we can see the great cotton country as we enter it, the soil now dark and fertile, now thin and gray, with fruit trees and dilapidated buildings, all the way to Albany. At Albany, in the heart of the Black Belt, we stop. Two hundred miles south of Atlanta, two hundred miles west of the Atlantic, and one hundred miles north of the Great Gulf lies Dougherty County, with ten thousand Negroes and two thousand whites. The Flint River winds down from Andersonville and, turning suddenly at Albany, the county seat, hurries on to join the Chattahoochee and the sea. Andrew Jackson knew the Flint well, and marched across it once to avenge the Indian massacre at Fort Mims. That was in 1814, not long before the Battle of New Orleans. And by the Creek Treaty that followed this campaign, all Doherty County, and much other rich land, was ceded to Georgia. Still, settlers fought shy of this land, for the Indians were all about, and they were unpleasant neighbors in those days. The Panic of 1837, which Jackson bequeathed to Van Buren, turned the planters from the impoverished lands of Virginia, the Carolinas, and East Georgia toward the west. The Indians were removed to Indian territory, and settlers poured into these coveted lands to retrieve their broken fortunes. For a radius of a hundred miles about Albany stretched a great fertile land, luxuriant with forests of pine, oak, ash, hickory, and poplar, hot with the sun, and damp with the rich black swampland and here the cornerstone of the cotton kingdom was laid. Albany is today a wide-streeted, placid southern town, with a broad sweep of stores and saloons and flanking rows of homes, whites usually to the north and blacks to the south. Six days in the week the town looks decidedly too small for itself, and takes frequent and prolonged naps. 
But on Saturday, suddenly the whole country disgorges itself upon the place, and a perfect flood of black peasantry pours through the streets, fills the stores, blocks the sidewalks, chokes the thoroughfares, and takes full possession of the town. They are black, sturdy, uncouth country folk, good-natured and simple, talkative to a degree, and yet far more silent and brooding than the crowds of the Rhine Falls, or Naples, or Krakow. They drink considerable quantities of whiskey, but do not get very drunk. They talk and laugh loudly at times, but seldom quarrel or fight. They walk up and down the streets, meet and gossip with friends, stare at the shop windows, buy coffee, cheap candy and clothes, and at dusk drive home. Happy? Well, no, not exactly happy, but much happier than as though they had not come. Thus Albany is a real capital, a typical southern county town, the center of the life of ten thousand souls, their point of contact with the outer world, their center of news and gossip, their market for buying and selling, borrowing and lending, their fountain of justice and law. Once upon a time we knew country life so well and city life so little that we illustrated city life as that of a closely crowded country district. Now the world has well-nigh forgotten what the country is, and we must imagine a little city of black people scattered far and wide over three hundred lonesome square miles of land, without train or trolley, in the midst of cotton and corn, and wide patches of sand and gloomy soil. It gets pretty hot in southern Georgia in July, a sort of dull, determined heat that seems quite independent of the sun. So it took us some days to muster courage enough to leave the porch and venture out on the long country roads that we might see this unknown world. Finally we started. It was about ten in the morning, bright with a faint breeze, and we jogged leisurely southward in the valley of the Flint. We passed the scattered box-like cabins of the brickyard hands and the long tenement row facetiously called the Ark, and were soon in the open country and on the confines of the great plantations of other days. There is the Joe Fields place. A rough old fellow was he, and had killed many a nigger in his day. Twelve miles his plantation used to run, a regular barony. It is nearly all gone now. Only straggling bits belong to the family, and the rest has passed to Jews and Negroes. Even the bits which are left are heavily mortgaged, and, like the rest of the land, tilled by tenants. Here is one of them now, a tall brown man, a hard worker and a hard drinker, illiterate but versed in farm lore as his nodding crops declare this distressingly new board house is his and he has just moved out of yonder moss-grown cabin with its one square room from the curtains in benton's house down the road a dark comely face is staring at the strangers for passing carriages are not everyday occurrences here benton is an intelligent yellow man with a good-sized family and manages a plantation blasted by the war and now the broken staff of the widow. He might be well-to-do, they say, but he carouses too much in Albany, and the half-desolate spirit of neglect, born of the very soil, seems to have settled on these acres. In times past there were cotton gins and machinery here, but they have rotted away. The whole land seems forlorn and forsaken. Here are the remnants of the vast plantations of the Sheldons, the Pellets, and the Rensons, but the souls of them are past. The houses lie in half-ruin, or have wholly disappeared. The fences have flown, and the families are wandering in the world. Strange vicissitudes have met these whilom masters. Yonder stretched the wide acres of Bildad Rezor. He died in wartime, but the upstart overseer hastened to wed the widow, 
Then he went, and his neighbors too, and now only the black tenant remains. But the shadow hand of the master's grand nephew or cousin or creditor stretches out of the gray distance to collect the rack-rent remorselessly, and so the land is uncared for and poor. Only black tenants can stand such a system, and they only because they must. Ten miles we have ridden today, and have seen no white face. A resistless feeling of depression falls slowly upon us, despite the gaudy sunshine and the green cotton fields. This, then, is the cotton kingdom, the shadow of a marvelous dream. And where is the king? Perhaps this is he, the sweating plowman, tilling his eighty acres with two lean mules and fighting a hard battle with debt. So we sit musing, until, as we turn a corner on the sandy road, there comes a fairer scene suddenly in view, a neat cottage snugly ensconced by the road, and near it a little store. A tall bronzed man arises from the porch as we hail him and comes out to our carriage. He is six feet in height, with a sober face that smiles gravely. He walks too straight to be a tenant. Yes, he owns two hundred and forty acres. Land has run down since the boom days of eighteen hundred and fifty, he explains, and the cotton is low. Three black tenants live on his place, and in his little store he keeps a small stock of tobacco, snuff, soap, and soda for the neighborhood. Here is his gin house with new machinery just installed. Three hundred bales of cotton went through it last year. Two children he has sent away to school. Yes, he says sadly, he is getting on but cotton is down to four cents. I know how debt sits staring at him. Wherever the king may be, the parks and palaces of the cotton kingdom have not wholly disappeared. We plunge even now into great groves of oak and towering pine with an undergrowth of myrtle and shrubbery. This was the home house of the Thompsons, slave barons who drove their coach and four in the merry past. All is silence now, and ashes and tangled weeds. The owner put his whole fortune into the rising cotton industry of the fifties, and with the falling prices of the eighties he packed up and stole away. Yonder is another grove, with unkempt lawn, great magnolias, and grass-grown paths. The big house stands in half-ruin, its great front door staring blankly at the street, and the back part grotesquely restored for its black tenant. A shabby, well-built negro is he, unlucky and irresolute. He digs hard to pay rent to the white girl who owns the remnant of the place. She married a policeman and lives in Savannah. Now and again we come to churches. Here is one now. Shepherds, they call it. A great whitewashed barn of a thing, perched on stilts of stone and looking for all the world as though it were just resting here a moment and might be expected to waddle off down the road at almost any time. And yet it is the center of a hundred cabin homes, and sometimes of a Sunday five hundred persons from far and near gather here and talk and eat and sing. There is a schoolhouse near, a very airy, empty shed, but even this is an improvement, for usually the school is held in the church. The churches vary from log huts to those like shepherds, and the schools from nothing to this little house that sits demurely on the county line. It is a tiny plank house, perhaps ten by twenty, and has within a double row of unplaned benches resting mostly on legs, sometimes on boxes. 
Opposite the door is a square homemade desk. In one corner are the ruins of a stove, and in the other a dim blackboard. It is the cheerfulest schoolhouse I have seen in Doherty, save in town. Back of the schoolhouse is a lodge house, two stories high and not quite finished. Societies meet there, societies to care for the sick and bury the dead, and these societies grow and flourish. We had come to the boundaries of Doherty, and we were about to turn west along the county line when all these sights were pointed out to us by a kindly old man, black, white-haired, and seventy. Forty-five years he had lived here, and now supports himself and his old wife by the help of the steer tethered yonder and the charity of his black neighbors. He shows us the farm of the hills just across the county line in Baker, a widow and two strapping sons who raised ten bales, one need not add cotton down here, last year. There are fences and pigs and cows, and the soft-voiced, velvet-skinned young Memnon, who sauntered half-bashfully over to greet the strangers, is proud of his home. We turn now to the west, along the county line. Great dismantled trunks of pines tower above the green cotton fields, cracking their naked, gnarled fingers toward the border of living forest beyond. There's little beauty in this region, only a sort of crude abandon that suggests power, a naked grandeur, as it were. The houses are bare and straight, there are no hammocks or easy chairs and few flowers. So when, as here at Rawdon's, one sees a vine clinging to a little porch and home-like windows peeping over the fences, one takes a long breath. I think I never before quite realized the place of the fence in civilization. This is the land of the unfenced, where crouch on either hand scores of ugly one-room cabins, cheerless and dirty. Here lies the Negro problem in its naked dirt and penury, and here are no fences. But now and then the criss-cross rails or straight palings break into view, and then we know a touch of culture is near. Of course, Harrison Gohagen, a quiet yellow man, young, smooth-faced, and diligent, of course he is lord of some hundred acres, and we expect to see a vision of well-kept rooms and fat beds and laughing children, for has he not fine fences? And those over yonder? Why should they build fences on the rack-rented land? It will only increase their rent. On we wind through sand and pines and glimpses of old plantations, till there creeps into sight a cluster of buildings, wood and brick, mills and houses, and scattered cabins. It seemed quite a village. As it came nearer and nearer, however, the aspect changed. The buildings were rotten, the bricks were falling out, the mills were silent, and the store was closed. Only in the cabins appeared, now and then, a bit of lazy life. I could imagine the place under some weird spell, and was half-minded to search out the princess. An old ragged black man, honest, simple, and improvident, told us the tale. The wizard of the north, the capitalist, had rushed down in the seventies to woo this coy, dark soil. He bought a square mile or more, and for a time the field hands sang, the gins groaned, and the mills buzzed. Then came a change. The agent's son embezzled the funds and ran off with them. Then the agent himself disappeared. Finally, the new agent stole even the books, and the company, in wrath, 
closed its business and its houses, refused to sell, and let houses and furniture and machinery rust and rot. So the water's luring plantation was stilled by the spell of dishonesty, and stands like some gaunt rebuke to a scarred land. Somehow that plantation ended our day's journey, for I could not shake off the influence of that silent scene. Back toward town we glided, past the straight and thread-like pines, past a dark tree-dotted pond where the air was heavy with a dead sweet perfume. White slender-legged curlews flitted by us, and the garnet blooms of the cotton looked gay against the green and purple stalks. A peasant girl was hoeing in the field, white-turbaned and black-limbed. All this we saw, but the spell still lay upon us. How curious a land is this! How full of untold story, of tragedy and laughter! and the rich legacy of human life, shadowed with a tragic past and big with future promise. This is the Black Belt of Georgia. Darty County is the west end of the Black Belt, and men once called it the Egypt of the Confederacy. It is full of historic interest. First, there is the swamp to the west, where the Chickasawhatchee flows sullenly southward. The shadow of an old plantation lies at its edge, forlorn and dark. Then comes the pool. Pendant gray moss and brackish waters appear, and forests filled with wildfowl. In one place the wood is on fire, smoldering in dull red anger, but nobody minds. Then the swamp grows beautiful. A raised road built by chained negro convicts dips down into it and forms a way walled and almost covered in living green. Spreading trees spring from a prodigal luxuriance of undergrowth. Great dark green shadows fade into the black background, until all is one mass of tangled semi-tropical foliage, marvelous in its weird, savage splendor. Once we crossed a black silent stream, where the sad trees and writhing creepers, all glinting fiery yellow and green, seemed like some vast cathedral, some green milan builded of wildwood and as i crossed i seemed to see again that fierce tragedy of seventy years ago osceola the indian negro chieftain had risen in the swamps of florida vowing vengeance his war cry reached the red creeks of doherty and their war cry rang from the chattahoochee to the sea men and women and children fled and fell before them as they swept into doherty in yonder shadows a dark and hideously painted warrior glided stealthily on, another and another, until three hundred had crept into the treacherous swamp. Then the false slime closing about them called the white men from the east. Waist-deep they fought beneath the tall trees, until the war-cry was hushed and the Indians glided back into the west. Small wonder the wood is red. Then came the black slaves. Day after day the clank of chained feet marching from Virginia and Carolina to Georgia was heard in these rich swamplands. Day after day the songs of the callous, the wail of the motherless, and the muttered curses of the wretched echoed from the Flint to the Chickasawhatchee, until by 1860 there had risen in West Doherty perhaps the richest slave kingdom the modern world ever knew. A hundred and fifty barons commanded the labor of nearly six thousand negroes, held sway over farms with ninety thousand acres tilled land, 
valued even in times of cheap soil, at three millions of dollars. Twenty thousand bales of ginned cotton went yearly to England, new and old, and men that came there bankrupt made money and grew rich. In a single decade the cotton output increased fourfold and the value of the lands was tripled. It was the heyday of the nouveau riche and a life of careless extravagance among the masters. Four and six bobtailed thoroughbreds rolled their coaches to town. Open hospitality and gay entertainment were the rule. Parks and groves were laid out, rich with flower and vine, and in the midst stood the low, wide-hauled big house with its porch and columns and great fireplaces. And yet with all this there was something sordid, something forced, a certain feverish unrest and recklessness, for was not all this show and tinsel built upon a groan? This land was a little hell, said a ragged brown and grave-faced man to me. We were seated near a roadside blacksmith shop, and behind was the bare ruin of some master's home. I've seen niggers drop dead in the furrow, but they were kicked aside, and the plow never stopped. Down in the guardhouse, that's where the blood ran. With such foundations, a kingdom must in time sway and fall. The masters moved to Macon and Augusta, and left only the irresponsible overseers on the land. And the result is such ruin as this. The Lloyd home place. Great waving oaks, a spread of lawn, myrtles, and chestnuts, all ragged and wild. A solitary gatepost standing where once was a castle entrance. An old rusty anvil lying amid rotted bellows and wood in the ruins of a blacksmith shop. A wide, rambling old mansion, brown and dingy, filled now with the grandchildren of the slaves who once waited on its tables, while the family of the master has dwindled to two lone women who live in Macon and feed hungrily off the remnants of an earldom. So we ride on past phantom gates and falling homes, past the once flourishing farms of the Smiths, the Gandys, and the Lagores, and find all dilapidated and half-ruined, even there where a solitary white woman, a relic of other days, sits alone in state among miles of Negroes, and rides to town in her ancient coach each day. End of chapter 7, part 1